Look out. Surging up from the depths of the sea. Horrifying, mysterious creatures whose attack on people sends the whole countryside on an endless search. Unless something is done and done quickly. Is this the end of our civilization? You'll pioneer with us the perilous descent into the unknown. What does that mean? What are you even talking about? A deep, penetrating dive. In the last calm and reflective moment before the monsters came. Humanoids from the deep dive. Welcome to the new podcast, Humanoids from the Deep Dive, where we dig deep into the meanings and context of your favorite monsters and monster movies. Each episode will see guests and myself give our take on an important movie monster and or film, and what we think it means using you know, everything from history and philosophy to films and folklore. The future episodes, uh, including this one, will sometimes have recommended films and readings for the interested viewer. Today's episode will be covering one of my favorite creature features of all time, and certainly my favorite of the black and white era, 1954's Creature from the Black Lagoon, and it's Creature the Gill Man. Fans of the show can find us on Spotify, Google, and iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at HFTDeepDive. I'm your host, Jeff Ewing. I'm an entertainment contributor for Forbes with bylines and Nightmare on Film Street and Shudders the Bite. And I've written a number of pop culture philosophy chapters and co-edited books on Alien and Stranger Things. I'm really pleased to introduce two excellent guests for today's episode. Thomas Casper is a filmmaker, along with being the co-host of the Twin Shadow podcast, one of my favorites to guest on. And he's an all-around nerd and an awesome guy. So welcome, Thomas. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. And Michael Vaughn is the author of The Ultimate Guide to Strange Cinema. He also runs the website, The Video Addict, where you can find reviews and exclusive interviews at thevideoaddict.blogspot.com. Welcome, Michael. Hey, thanks for having me. So glad you could be here. The Gill Man is one of my favorite creature designs of all time. We'll get into that. And it's originator, Millicent Patrick, for the 1954 film. But to kind of start off by summarizing what its debut film is, 1954's Creature from the Black Lagoon, the last original monster of the formal Universal Monsters, Although I do think that the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park should qualify as universal monsters, and maybe Jaws should too. Just a thought. Film is directed by Jack Arnold from a screenplay written by Harry Essex and Arthur Ross. Stars Richard Carlson as Dr. David Reed, Julie Adams as Kay Lawrence, and Richard Denning as Dr. Mark Williams. The Gill Man was designed by Disney animator Millicent Patrick and played by Ben Chapman while on land and Raku Browning underwater. So the film takes place at first with the geology expedition in the Amazon that uncovers ancient evidence of a skeletal hand with strange webbed fingers that seems to provide a link between land and sea animals. The leader of the expedition, Dr. Carl Maya, Antonio Morena, orders his assistants to stay in the camp while he visits the local marine biology institute. He reunites with a friend and student, Dr. David Reed, Richard Carlson, and the two acquire funding for a further expedition, David and his research assistant and fiance Kay Lawrence, an excellent Julia Adams, travel back to the Amazon to exhume and examine the remaining skeleton with the rest of the expedition. The expedition soon comes in contact with a living amphibious humanoid creature of the same species, and it kills some of the assistants at the camp to the later shock and horror of the arriving scientists. They proceed to search the area where the fossil is found, and as they proceed to investigate the Black Lagoon, they are stopped by the amphibious creature known to us as the Gill Man, who becomes fascinated by Kay and who increasingly endangers the expedition. For both of you guys, we'll get more in depth into themes and stuff like that later, but what are your thoughts on this film generally? I would say in general, the first thing that stands out to me in this film is uh, the amount of underwater shots. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, it's pretty impressive. I'm not entirely sure. Maybe you guys know more about this than I do, but how many movies had that kind of extensive underwater shooting before this movie? I feel like that's very, it's something that really stands out to me is the underwater shots are just wonderful. Well, um, actually it was, it's interesting. The cameras that they use were, were pretty state of the art at the time. And I guess before that, they would film underwater stuff, but they couldn't do it without being behind plexiglass or something. They had these new cameras that they could actually like film all this stuff right as it was happening without like the aid of anything else. And I mean, they really show it off in the movie. It's 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 pretty incredible. It's also interesting, too, because it was one of the earlier films in the 1950s, like 3D movie wave. So shot in 3D. And that had an entirely different level of difficulty for the underwater shots. I think they could only do it for a relatively short period at a time. So the third movie, which was not filmed in 3D, I think, has some of their longest underwater shots because it was a little more permissible and and effective to be able to do it with the standard 2D cameras. So it was was a high level of difficulty. Oh, yeah, I couldn't imagine. It's I mean... It it just I just love the underwater shots. Also, I also like that it's kind of like the Jungle Cruise at Disneyland. <laughs> like the the whole ride, just like them going <laughs> down this river, like for but most for most of the film, uh, until they finally get to the Black Lagoon, which then you know they run into the creature. Also, one thing I, I want to mention is you see the creature, or at least his hand, very early in the movie. Like it's not like yeah. standard Universal where it's like we don't see the monster till like the last the third of the film. It's like, boom, right there. The creature is right there. Gilman, it shows up Mm -hmm. a lot. I mean, they put a lot of work into that costume and outfit, so they definitely, they got a lot of use out of it. Yeah, they showed off on land. They showed off on sea. They have two different people playing the the Gilman. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's interesting how they also uh, had considered, strongly considered doing it in color. But I guess, you know, it was already, the budget was was pretty inflated with like the 3D, which I, I think... I don't know if purists might not like this, but I actually think that this would be really cool in color. No, I think it would be really cool in color. Uh, I I know I was reading that part of the reason it was in black and white is it's different colors. Uh, the uh, the underwater costume, if I'm not mistaken, it's like more yellow. Hmm. Uh, so it would stand out more in the water, or at least maybe that's only for the second one, because I know the uh, the on land one was like more of a different color, at least for the second one. So that's kind of why they stuck with black and white. Maybe. I don't know. I, I think it would be awesome in color, like you said. I don't know how much we're going to talk about Shape of Water, but how that's like a kind of like a natural continuation for the series, I think. You are right. It is a, they're different colors. So the on-land costume was a mossy green, um, and the underwater one was a yellowish color to help with lighting and shadows while they were filming, you know, underwater. Yeah. So they would have had to have accommodated that. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. I, I was like, I was reading that because I was like looking at it. I was like, maybe that, that, that doesn't make sense to me because I'm sure green does not really stand out too well underwater like yellow right. does. Yeah. Right. I feel it's something that we could have easily managed now, but in 1954, the process of coloration and color correction is so much more elaborate. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Plus, I mean, it probably just made it easier all around because like you said, uh, uh, Mike had mentioned, it makes it cheaper, right, to shoot in black and white. Yeah. Um, so that probably adds a lot because I think that this isn't a low budget film, but it's definitely not uh, pretty expensive for the time, right? Uh, I'm not I'm not sure, but I know that probably like the 3D, like I said, the shooting in 3D, I guess, was like two different cameras. So that was probably like at least twice the normal 
cost of a movie probably <laughs> right yeah it was profitable but it definitely had a heavy upfront cost i'm trying to find it yeah i was just looking for the budget myself as well i just saw the box office uh which it made 1.3 million which i'm not entirely sure if that's great for the time but i mean i, I know this movie's made waves uh sorry for the pun <laughs> but but yeah um uh i'm curious to know what you guys think about uh, the other cast like i personally i love lucas like just the captain of the the ship where he's just oh, like yeah. hey man this is my boat <laughs> he puts a knife to the the doctor's throat and is like get off you know if you don't like it my way you can get the hell off the boat <laughs> according to one site apparently is one of the first times moviegoers have seen like a full body monster costume that you can't tell is a person and the entire film cost about a half million dollars to make okay nice so it was profitable as, as long as they didn't spend too much on marketing. Not not so bad. So how would you rate the movie um, out of flippers? How many flippers would you give Creature from the Black Lagoon? All right. So I'm, give, I'm giving this, you know, four flippers out of five, I guess you would say. Uh, the, only re- the only reason it doesn't get the full five flippers for me is I think there are some parts in the beginning where I'm just like, okay, come on. I want to get, I mean, once we work the monster, I'm completely, once we're with Gilman, I'm completely sold. But like, there's like a few, there's like a little bit there. But I know that's like just the classic style of just setting up those movies. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, four, a solid four out of five for me. Yeah. I feel like, um, uh, it definitely there are some some repetition in terms of the reveal of the monster where it's like a hand coming up oh no never mind a hand coming up oh no <laughs> where where it just kind of stalls a little bit but in general um we'll get to my review but but i think that that's that's very fair what, what about you michael what are your thoughts yeah i'd probably say a four as well um you know not just probably echoing what thomas said about it it um you know, being a little shaggy at, in the first act. Um, but then it definitely does pick up. And, you know, once we get into that kind of the meat of the action. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm going to give it four and a half. It is, it does have some, some leg in the first act and it has, uh, we'll get into this in a little bit, a few too many similarities in plot construction to King Kong. But I think what sells it for me is the detail and the inhumanness of the creature. It's uh, way ahead of its time in terms of costume design, and they pulled it off uh, swimmingly. <laughs> <laughs> we just got to sneak in as many of those those uh, water puns huh, as we can. You got to sneak them in if you got them. So are we diving into the next topic? We are. Uh, I'm going to give a little bit. Uh, thank you for that. Um, well, I'm gonna I'll, give, I'll, uh, bef- I'll try not to scale back my. <laughs> we'll just claw our way right to it. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> no, that's perfect. Um, I'm going to go ahead and give some context to the film before we kind of do do a deeper dive into to our, you know, more detailed analysis. Uh, so for horror in the 1950s, it was a strange combination of post-war optimism and post-war fear, paranoia, and trauma. Uh, American popular culture was still interested in monsters, but what monsters were popular in the themes really changed with the time uh, as everyone got back from experiencing the horrors of war and the new technologies that were unleashed. Uh, 
so supernatural creatures that are small scale threats like your Draculas uh, and ghosts were less uh, they were less popular they were um, less reflective of the times whereas by contrast uh, larger scale threats were increasingly popular. The major two monster types that really kind of emerged were these massive nuclear monsters um, that resulted from experimentation or the byproducts of nuclear testing. Uh, so, you know, in America, you'll have them and Tarantula and Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. And obviously in Japan, you have one of the greatest monsters of all time, Godzilla, Rodan, similar creatures. Um, and on the other hand, you have a lot of extraterrestrial invasion fears like we would find in The Thing from Another World, The Day the Earth Stood Still, or 1956's Invasion of the Body Snatchers. So the creature specifically was kind of an interesting hybrid of a, it was a more scientific naturalistic entity, but it still kind of fit within uh, that earlier tradition of a localized threat, really. It wasn't really part of the new trend, but it was still kind of cutting edge in how they filmed it with the 3d technology. It was very popular at the time um, and kind of grew in popularity period in popularity periodically. Um, so the idea for, for creature isn't entirely novel. So you have an Amazon expedition that brings back the form of a creature that was supposed to be long extinct when a new expedition uh, travels back by boat to find prehistoric monsters. That's Absolutely the plot of Arthur Conan Doyle's 1912 novel, The Lost World. Uh, oh, the right, one that yeah. In, yeah, the one that inspired King Kong and that uh, in 33, obviously, and then resurfaced in Creature from the Black Lagoon. But what's interesting is that didn't directly inspire the story initially. Uh, what cemented the idea for producer Willem, uh, the producer William Olland was, uh, he was at a dinner uh, and was conversing with Orson Welles, the cinematographer Gabriel uh, Figueroa, uh, himself as an actor, and uh, a bunch of other folks. And Figueroa reportedly told a tale that he had overheard about a, a creature in the Amazon who is half man, half fish, that once a year comes up and claims a woman and leaves to return every year as a cycle. Years later, well after World War II, um, Holland was a pilot. Uh, so in 1952, he was thinking really hard about new titles for Universal International. And that story just kind of came to mind spontaneously. He wrote up the idea in this three-page memo called The Sea Monster, which eventually became the story for the creature from the Black Lagoon. One that heavily, in his memo, borrowed from the plot of King Kong. Um coincidentally king kong had been a very profitable re-release in 1952 so it's it's a little curious how he got that inspiration uh and then the story was fleshed out uh by marie sim and then sent a script the uh the gilman creature design uh, i have to give a major shout out here it was accomplished by millicent patrick who was a an artist working for universal studios special effects shop she was the first woman to design a monster for a major motion picture, and in in my opinion, was one of is one of the greatest monster designs of all time, even to this day. Um, she was sent. This is a shady part. So 
the monster design was successful. It was iconic. She was sent by Universal on this press tour, this wide-ranging press tour for months to promote the film. And while she was away, the head of the makeup shop, Bud Westmore, was jealous of her increasing recognition and acclaim. And when she returned months later from the tour, he fired her, pulled her from all the projects she was working on or attached to work on and refused to hire her for future work. She never designed another monster or anything else ever again. And her name basically faded for decades into obscurity while the creature became an icon and Bud Westmore largely took the credit. And her name doesn't appear uh, anywhere in the credits because they had a lot less extensive credits at that time. Um, So a brief shout out to uh, one book in particular, Mallory O'Mara's The Lady from the Black Lagoon, which it's a wonderful in-depth book on Millicent Patrick and her once lost legacy. Um, It's one of my favorite designs of all time. And I'm very sad that we were robbed of what could have been a great career uh, of who knows what else she would have come up with. But um, so that's the context behind the origins of the idea. She was actually the, um, sorry. um, I was going to say she's also was the first uh, female animator for Disney. Oh yeah, absolutely. She was incredibly accomplished. Yeah, man. That, I mean, it also that's one thing you have to kind of keep in mind when you're watching these films is the time that they were made as well, right? I mean, mm-hmm. this was, these were put together in early '50s. I mean, definitely different times. Uh, hopefully, things are better. I would hope, like to hope so. Um, but yeah, that's like yeah, it's just so depressing thinking about like it's they were just pretty much robbed her of her of her work. Um, luckily, you know, we're out here now praising her. Um, and that's, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, cause I'm, I'm looking at photos right now of, uh, the detail on the layering of the gills and like the, the face and the fact that it's expressive, but inhuman is so ahead of its time. Yeah. This is one of the most intric- intricate, uh, monster costumes, I think, especially in the universal lineup. Yeah, I mean this—he's humanoid, but he's not human at all. Uh, I mm-hmm. mean, other than the fact that he's, you know, has two legs and two arms, but I mean, just the way that the the suit operates, the gills move, how it breathes, everything—it's just—it looks—it's very, it's just very unique. It's awesome. I love it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's incredible. I mean, again, um, it's been a little while since I've seen it, and it's like it's still, uh, just. I mean, it blows me away. I mean, that's kind of like the only thing I can say is it's, it's, it's one of the few creature designs that really holds up like all these decades later. Yeah, totally. absolutely. And it's so interesting too, because even to look at it in HD where it's face on to the camera, you can't tell there's a person in it. Absolutely. Yeah. If I mean, he's in a, and I think it's like multi layers of the suit um but like especially like when he's up on the land walking around or he's on the when he's on the boat it's just like dude this thing is like a towering monstrosity like it looks great Mm -hmm. like it's fantastic mike you mentioned earlier getting to meet some of the cast members from creature can you talk a little bit about that so i got it was it was such a fun weekend i got to meet um ben and rico and julie all in the same weekend um (laughs) And I believe this was like a really early Monster Mania Con, like maybe one or two. Um, 
and really nice. Julie was um, just, I mean, they were all really awesome. Um, but Julie was just so kind to her fans. Um, really nice. Took, took, um, so I don't know. Do you guys do conventions? Uh, sometimes, uh, but I mean, obviously not this year, COVID. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, like when, when you have actors that like, they'll sign something, they'll throw it back. They'll like next, they'll cattle you through. Yeah. And I mean, she did not do that. Um, she took her time. Um, you know, fans had questions. I'm, I'm sure she had, she answered the same question like 40,000 times, but you never would know it because she was so, um, nice and amazing and friendly um betsy palmer was the same way she was um she treated every single person like her oldest best you know friend um oh that's so awesome you know i i um i mean that's a whole other tangent but anyways like uh ben chapman was really nice um you know i met reek i i met ben and rico twice um i think I'm trying to, I think I met Julie only once, but uh, really nice. You know, Ben had a lot of great memories. Again, he treated every fan um, with the utmost respect. And, uh, uh, you know, again, everybody probably asked him the same question 5,000 times, but he, you would never like would... wearing the suit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Suit? But, you know, it's like swimming in the suit. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. yeah, I mean, and, and he was, they were, they were all like fantastic to meet. You know, it's really sad about um, Julie passing and Ben. Yeah. Um, they were, again, incredibly kind. I met Rico again uh, last year at Monster Bash. And yeah, again, just so nice. Um, I have a really cool like 11 by 17 repo poster that they all, all three of them mm-hmm. signed. Um, and oh, a side really sh- cool. yeah, and it's, I have um, one of the sideshow figures of the Gilman that um, Ben and Rico signed. I always wish I could have, I, I wish I would have had Julie sign it too, but I feel like they were the two Gilman, so they, you know. It's appropriate, you know, like (laughs) there's honestly like the both the actors who played the Gilman and Julie Adams are clearly the stars of that movie. I I mean, there's a reason why if you look at any publicity photos from the film at any point for any outlet, it's just the creature and Julie Adams. That's it. Well, yeah, I mean, they're the central characters and they're what's important in the film, right? Um, Yes. Also, I, before we get off uh, on this, I want—I would feel remiss if I didn't bring up kind of how scary uh, the creature from the Black Lagoon is if you're afraid of being underwater. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of times where I was like, oh, this is unsettling. <laughs> like, I, I'm very, it's very uncomfortable to, to be underwater like that where you can see and yeah. you don't really know what's around and the photography that they used. Yeah, it, I, it's also kind of scary. So. I'm so glad that you mentioned that because uh, I am more uh, unnerved by like aquatic horror than by most things. Cause I feel like even in space versus like a xenomorph, it's scary. It'll probably kill me, but at least in my brain, I feel like I have a reasonable shot of damaging it, figuring a way out, something like that. But if I'm underwater, anything there, I'm, I'm super screwed. Like, yeah, because they can all move vastly better than i can you know and breathe <laughs> uh-huh. helpful <laughs> yeah that's why i loved underwater so much as well is because like that stuff just 
terrifies me because like not being able to know what's five feet in front of your face is terrifying. Yeah, it was so weirdly claustrophobic. Yeah, and and sometimes I like I felt that while watching uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon when they're underwater and it's like just following them. It's like, is it the creature following them? Like, wow, this is actually a little scary. Holy crap, I love it. Like, I I did not re- I remember ever being afraid by this movie, and I've seen it tons of dozens of times mm-hmm. um but this time i was like really like paying attention and watching and i was like this is just really well done i love it yeah i mean like that uh that opening like the creature you know attacking the the tent um i mean i forgot kind of how just how intense that was i mean if if i mean i was trying to think of like an audience in the 50s um you know before like any of like the gore and and really intense stuff. I mean, that, um, I mean, is, is such a great scene. I mean, I, I still feel like, um, if you haven't been exposed to a lot of horror, that could still actually be a pretty effective scene for somebody. Yeah. And like, uh, yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, and it's filmed with such like realistic vibrancy for 1954. It, it yeah. like in HD, it very much holds up. Oh, it looks way better than when I remember ever watching it as a kid, like on the old VHS tapes that we had. Um, but yeah, it looks like I because I rented it off Amazon and it was like, damn, this looks great. This looks so good. Yeah, I found myself. I wanted to watch the 3D version for the first time for this, but uh, I don't have that kind of TV. And I was so angry at my television <laughs> not being able to do that for me. Yeah, I don't I don't have a TV that is 3D either. I would be interesting to watch in 3D. Yeah. Uh I just want to because I, I uh my lady and I went to this uh a museum exhibit on like uh 3D technology and we went from like the early um Nickelodeon ones that they did all to like the 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 50s 3D um, you know, glasses ones. And we, we saw some clips from like creature in 3d and it was really fun. So I, I definitely want to try and find some way to watch it. Yeah. That'd be awesome. I would love to see it in theaters in 3d. That would be awesome. Um, I remember at, at this monster mania con that they would do like screenings and they did screen like, so like um, I think maybe revenge of the creature. And that was actually kind of cool to see with an audience. Um, for sure. Oh, yeah, audiences add all, so much. Like that's why I, I really hope theaters never really go anywhere. Like, it's because uh, just seeing a movie with an audience, especially just random strangers. Like sometimes it can be horrible. Like you can have bad experiences, but sure. I mean, just the, that energy that you feel in the room, especially like when you watch a good scary movie or yeah. something like that, just, just adds so much. Yeah, I, I really miss theaters. I was kind of lucky because my last uh, I uh, I saw before COVID ruined everything for everyone for a whole year. I did get to see Universal's Invisible Man in theaters during its theatrical run. Oh, nice! And I had a very good audience. They were, you know, tense and they laughed at the right moments and they were scared at the right moments. And it was exactly like that theatrical experience that you kind of hope for. Awesome, yeah, because that, yeah, when we, when we saw Dark and the Wicked uh, at the drive-in for the the premiere, that was that was that kind of intensity where people are screaming out of their cars, and I'm like, yes, I feel it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm excited for people to get to see that wider on a wider run. Yeah, I can't wait. I hope people don't think I overhyped it. 
<laughs> no, it's scary. It's good. Yeah, Mike, have you seen Dark and the Wicked? No, I haven't seen. No, I, I've heard good things. I, I, I am completely obsessed with that movie, so I would highly recommend seeing it. Yeah, it comes out eleven uh, six. Yeah, uh, and I think it's also is it simultaneously heading to Shutter? I think so. Probably, yeah. I think that's what they were saying. Yeah, yeah, because there's not really releases any. It's really strange what's going on right now. I don't know. Stuck taping ideas together. <laughs> yeah, it's really weird. COVID. But you gotta do what you gotta do. Kind of moving into sort of deep dive portion i wanted to kind of uh ask you both what are your thoughts just generally about the the creature of the film if there's anything that really comes to mind and specifically about themes that pertain to the film the creature that sort of strike you well for me personally i, I de- the theme that i like is it's very it's it almost feels like it's very uh anti-type for uh the time it was made where it, it, this is just like, yo, leave nature alone. <laughs> mm-hmm. Very much like science versus nature. Uh, you know, Western, Westernism, like colonialism, all these things coming in. It's just like, look, you, you can't just go into some uncharted territory and just start ripping apart the land and taking whatever you want because, you know, there might be a gill man there to kill you. Um, and he mm-hmm. might have all the right to do so, which I think is kind of interesting. Um also, what I really like, uh, at least themes about the film, is that uh, it's really a female-led centric film. Um, it's really mm-hmm. all about Kay. Um, mm-hmm. Everyone's kind of everyone in the movie is kind of wanting Kay, wants Kay, uh, mm-hmm. even to a point where it's like it's kind of creepy. <laughs> like <laughs> she's the only girl on this boat. Every man is there, yep. just like staring at her constantly, and it's like, okay, it's they're very much going for that uh, the object of affection here, right? Is like almost too much because it's like she's always front and center yeah uh but and it's but it's it really plays off well when the creature starts to come become attracted to her as well and you're like okay this is he's there is maybe a little more human to this monster than meets the eye absolutely I, i think it's really interesting on that note because uh the film plays her she's not just a vapid sex object it plays her as a respectable scientist but to these men that have positions over her, which is really in a way ahead of its time, they do fight over her as a object of, of affection almost exclusively. And so it does treat her both as more than that. And then also that is a function for her character in the film. Yes, absolutely. And I, and I think it's, it's great. Uh, it has some aspects where it's really good because it's really, it pushes that theme where it's like, okay, she can't stand on her own two feet, but it doesn't matter because everyone's trampling over themselves to try to get to her. Mm-hmm. Like there's that, there's a scene in the film when she's just like swimming in the water and they're mm-hmm. like, come back. You're too far. So they like pull up the anchor and they're like going over there. And it's like, dude, she's like 10 feet from the boat. She's fine. Yeah. Right. I mean, they didn't know that the creature was really out there yet. Uh, and then that's kind of when the creature sees her for the first time too. And then you get a lot of scenes where the creature's admiring her. Yeah. And he's like kind of gentle with her too. I mean, I don't know if that was intentional or if that was just how it was shot, but where he's kind of like playing with her feet a little bit and it's like, okay, mm-hmm. I can definitely see how you get to the shape of water from here for the Gilman. Cause the Gilman, yeah. Gilman's thirsty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, even that one of their first scenes together is is an underwater scene where I think he does reach out for at the very end of that scene, but it starts with him mimicking her swimming movements. Yeah. Mirroring them, Mm -hmm. which is not aggressive at all. Yeah, exactly. He's like very curious and it's they play that very it's like it's played very much against type of what a monster should be doing. Right. It's like the monster sees the girl and it's like he's going to go get her. But I mean, he's just like swimming along with her and it's like, okay, this is okay. This is different. It's interesting. Yeah, it's almost more like he's more curious than menacing. I mean, I like mm-hmm. that, again, our sympathies definitely lie with the Gill Man. I mean, he's not... Anytime he kind of is aggressive is because he's, you know, people are in his backyard, <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. It's like if someone mm-hmm. just showed up at your house and started digging through your fossils of your, love, you know, probably loved ones. I don't know if he... What do you guys think about that opening scene? Are is that hand like a relative of his? How long did the Gill Man live? Do we know? Is that I don't something think we do know? I mean, hypothetically, he could be alive for a long time, but it was largely fossilized, so I would take it as ancestry. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like they're coming in and just like digging out your ancestors. It's not cool, man. <laughs> yeah, literally, like they're grave robbing. <laughs> yeah, literally, yeah, really. Because what I like too is like there is intelligence in the Gill Man. Mm-hmm. He is. He definitely. The Gilman thinks about things. I mean, it's really cool. Like, it's really interesting when you think about how he's like really also one of the only universal monsters. I think maybe the only universal monster that isn't from transforming as a human originally into something else. Yeah, yeah. I think that makes it very special. Yeah, exactly. If if anything, he's the reverse where he's the he is transforming to more human. Yeah, as the films progress. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, by the third one, they like pretty much make him human. It's kind of crazy. That's weird. I, w- I want to get to that too when I when I talk about my theme. But was there any uh, any themes or aspects of the film that really strike you, Mike? Uh, I think it was kind of interesting rewatching this. You know, with that the great opening scene with the creature, the point of view of him attacking the camp, and you know, it's interesting how you know it, it's your your story of of people that clearly don't belong in a certain area encroaching uh, again where they're not supposed to be and bad things happen. I mean, we see that in like a lot of horror movies like Texas Chainsaw Massacre or The Hills Have Eyes. But, right, you know, I don't know if that's the earliest example of that trope, but I mean, it's definitely interesting to kind of trace it back to Creature from the Black Lagoon as far as Westerners going into, you know, clearly places they're not supposed to be and, and suffering consequences. Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, they start off with they find these remnants of a of a new species as as they understand it, and then it go off. They go off and they do the scientist thing, and they try and get funding to get a better bigger expedition to dig for what might unintentionally be a burial ground. We don't know what, if they mourned. We don't know anything about them. Neither do they. So they're trying to get funds to interrogate and violate and claim further and then they get their comeuppance for that sort of act of aggression against the creature even if it's even if they don't know there's anything to be to be aggressive against they find out yeah absolutely ambition in this sense is almost dangerous for the characters because i feel like every character it's like no we need to find the gill man and capture him alive right it's like they all meet horrible fates Mm -hmm. um and then some people just get, you know, they're in the way. <laughs> Sadly, yeah. there's just a few dudes that are just in the way. 
it's interesting too because like largely the Gilman seems to operate mostly in self-defense at least in the first film because even the initial death of the two assistants it's sad but they fire the first shot like he investigates the Gilman investigates the tent and right away they throw like a firebomb or a yeah it's like a lantern yeah like a lantern mm-hmm. uh at him and then he kills them both that's true too yeah i guess i, I guess he was acting a bit in self defense because that's always was like my hang up was like the creature just goes and kills the the research assistants in the tent but i guess he could have been just like checking them out yeah too and they just attacked him yeah because we don't really know what the motives would have been without the intervention of him being attacked um but he does have a penchant in the film for intelligently observing like he observes k and the exhibition long before they notice him yeah well he also sets a trap for them or at least creates a dam to uh, Mm -hmm. trapping them in to the lagoon which kind of creates this one location horror film, which is pretty awesome. Like they're like pretty yeah. much struggling to free themselves from this tree that's been pulled down by the monster who his strength is kind of all over the place. Like I feel like he could pick up the boat at some points. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like he could just flip the whole boat. And then sometimes he can't cause he pulled that tree down and that tree we could barely get lifted up the, the arm of the boat. So I was like, how strong is the Gilman? That's a good question. <laughs> He's because in the third movie, he literally pushes over a block, like a like a concrete block that's attached to a gate. He literally just cuts right. it in half with his hand, yeah. like it's crazy. So I'm like, yeah, he's he's strong. He's got like Superman strength. He's been lifting, man. Like once <laughs> he lost his love, he's like, well, no. But if I got swole, this would not have happened. <laughs> that's true. One of the the themes that I thought was really powerful, and it is. So implicit in in many monster films is this notion that the the bigger picture threat is that human dominance over our world would be a threat because of this thing. So like in the West, uh, there's been this long Western approach to nature where it's like human beings are the top of the pyramid and we have to sometimes violently do anything to stay top of the pyramid and things that would take our place are massive threats, be it zombies, vampires. Uh, there's a whole lot of films where it's plant life is even considered a threat, like Day of the Triffids and The Happening. And, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Thing from Another World is a plant-based alien. And then all of those extraterrestrial threats or mega. Don't forget Little Shop of Horrors. Absolutely not. (laughs) Oh, Audrey. Audrey has, Audrey too has my heart. She takes over the world, I believe, in uh, one of the endings, right? One of the alternate endings. And then sings wonderful songs for everyone. (laughs) And then you have all these, uh, like the Godzilla films, especially the, the recent ones are incredibly explicit about, no, Godzilla is the head of the planet and we're nice little pets that should really just thank him for not destroying things. And so there's this theme that so many different types of monsters threaten our place in the natural order of things. And I love that this film kind of posits that even in the first one, one of the rationales for studying the creature is that it's kind of halfway between this amphibious evolution and a humanoid evolution, almost like the missing link between are distinct species and and the aquatic life that came before. And so they want to intervene and they find and discover and they study or they want to 
so that they can improve our our species capacity to survive on other worlds and to to improve ourselves because it's kind of implied that in some ways it's an improvement over us yeah it's really interesting that they keep wanting to use the gill man to go to space because it's like he doesn't not breathe at all (laughs) (laughs) but uh yeah because but yeah you're right like their their whole idea is they want to capture him and study him to advance the human race in a sense right um that's definitely the theme of the third film uh uh for uh, guys out there uh mike have you seen the third one yeah I, i've seen it um i was just thinking that it's been probably even a longer time since i've seen the sequels yeah um because yeah in the third film they capture him and they set him on fire which burns away all of the scales and they're like oh there's human flesh under here and it's like oh oh there's human flesh under the Gilman's scales it's it's like very much so like what jeff was saying where it's like he is like the missing link the evolutionary step between us leaving the water in a sense yeah and don't they establish that he has i mean obviously he has gills he's the gill man but don't they establish that he has lungs yeah in the third film he has lungs they give him a tracheotomy to get him to start breathing uh using his lungs because it's like the the sandfish or whatever that can breathe they can switch they can alternate between gills or lungs so he has Mm -hmm. dual dual capacity breathing there and that's what they want to use for space for some for some strange reason. I don't know. <laughs> it makes sense if you think about how gills allow you to breathe oxygen underwater, and in space there's no oxygen to breathe because it's not made of water. But hey, you know, it's 1950 science. What are you gonna do? That's true. I I mean I just <laughs> I just think it's so I just thought it was comical when it's you're watching the movie and it's like you see the gill man you're like i could use that guy to get to space like uh, what like i know it's a suit and it's a great suit but it's not a space suit no so yeah i think that's so interesting too because uh it definitely highlights this notion that because he's shown making as you mentioned making traps he's shown exhibiting empathy and a sense of right and wrong especially in the third one they give him increasingly human traits that just underscore that he's not really different that much from humans in the things that we rate ourselves as above nature by. He just has extra things that we don't. Yeah, and I definitely think that's part of the the, the lasting power of the film is that he is that the creature is much more than just a monster. Um, and like with all great monster movies, right? All the it's the monsters are way more than just raw or eat things. I mean, those are fun. Don't get me wrong. I love, I mean, critters is great all day, but uh, I want to like, it'd be, you want to know more about the creature. Cause you're like, wow. And I'm really interested to know like how developed is the creature. I mean, he essentially lives in those caves. Like maybe he has some posters in there. Like we, we didn't really get to see. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love how it's it's they keep it very kind of um, they keep you guessing, but they give you just enough kind of information to kind of hook you. So I think that's a great point. I mean, that's definitely, you know, you don't need a lot of needless exposition, I think, which, again, I think, you know, Thomas, you were saying about how that kind of makes it such an enduring uh, thing is because you don't really um, know a whole lot, especially like in the first film. Yeah, exactly. You're literally just it's like, OK, you're curious enough to want to dig deeper. And then the the, the second and third film go more into uh, like 
they're they're that's when it really takes the King Kong twist because they keep capturing him and bringing him to amusement parks. So that's there. Those are way more. And then they're like trying to condition him uh, and train him. And it's like, OK, we we see where this is going. But I, I really just wanted to see what like the creature is like. What is the creature? Because the like the film leads you to believe that it's like, yeah, it, it could be other intelligent life, uh, you know, at our level or lower, or, you know, on the on our on par with us. Right. It's almost like. Right. It's like, right. okay, he's not human exactly, but it's like we're not the only thing. It's a like very specious kind of idea, right? Like we're the only smart ones on this planet. There's nothing else out there. It's like, well, we don't know. I don't know. I, I like that idea. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's interesting. Like you, um, it's like that kind of hubris. I mean, you, you know, Jurassic Park is very much a love letter to Creature from the Black Lagoon. You know, where you have these scientists, you know, you have people that think that we're uh, top of the food chain and the dinosaurs put us back in our place. I mean, it's a very, I mean, I, I, I could definitely see um, Spielberg being very influenced by Black Lagoon, um, not only just with like some shots from Jaws, but again, a lot like in Jurassic Park, there's a lot of thematic similarities. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and both of them really have a, a large connection to scientific hubris. Thomas, kind of like you mentioned earlier, how the scientists are invading, like they're, they're colonizing this space they have no right to be in. And it, it puts them at the effective mercy of forces that they're out of their depth with. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there is that call to adventure where it's like, okay, we're going to go and look anyway, right? That's like a very human thing. But at the same time, it's like once we get there, we don't need we just need to not start lighting things on fire and shooting at them. And I like I think I think that's what I and that's what I like a lot about. Uh, I believe it's David Kay's boyfriend that's, lover. Guy. Yeah, that's, that's one of them. Yeah. Yeah. And he's where he's kind of like, look, we we should just get the hell out of here. <laughs> Why are we still hanging around? And uh, he's the one that's kind of like, don't sh- keep shooting it at the end. Right. Because I don't know. Yeah. Spoilers. Uh, he doesn't the creature doesn't technically die i guess we don't really know like if how the creature if the creature can die because he just keeps coming back so and also we don't know there's just one that's true we don't it's just they just theorize that it's kind of like trapped Loch nessie style right right yeah we do know there was obviously at least one other one in the past so yeah it could be an entire civilization for all we know well it's interesting that they were trying when when they were like doing um you know, they planned a, a really big uh, remake in 82. And uh, I guess one of the um, things that they wanted to do was like a female Gilman. They wanted to do like children Gilman. I mean, it's a shame that it never happened. Um, Rick Baker was actually signed on. Oh, that would have been awesome. And they were actually um, trying, Jack Arnold actually wanted to be involved, um, the original director. Um, but they decided to go with Jaws 3D instead. i feel like the creature is is definitely this long story of of adaptations or sequels that would have been absolutely perfect that almost happened because john carpenter was attached to one at one point del toro was attached to a formal one at one point obviously that didn't go i think it's like screw it i'm making my own yeah that's true i mean that's true maybe it's almost like a blessing as well because it doesn't it's not 
I don't want to say tarnished by a string of cheesy remakes or anything like that, but it it's not a franchise that's been just like buried in the ground. Like it's definitely something we could still go with today. It would be something refreshing to see. It would yeah. be great. Just like just like with Shape of Water. I mean, that one best picture. I mean, essentially Gilman won best picture at one point. That's kind of mm-hmm. awesome to think about. But what I think is just really interesting about the character and its its lasting power is like it is such a popular character. It's such a recognizable um, monster, but it doesn't have a thousand movies. It has three plus Shape of Water. I mean, yeah. unless you're counting like Monster Squad and Ab- Abaddon Costello, the one that he was in as well. Like, but for the most part, it, it's like it, there's three movies and that's it, mm-hmm. which is like really kind of rare in today's yeah. world for something that's so popular. Yeah, they didn't even adapt anything like it for Hammer, and they they did uh, at least one of of many of the classic Universal monsters. They did like one wolf werewolf one. They obviously had a bunch of Frankenstein and Dracula films, but they didn't do. There's even a Mummy. They did a Mummy. Yeah. There's a Hammer mummy, mummy movie as well. I think it's more than one. I think there might. Yeah, be... yeah. There's like two or three. I think. Yeah. Um... Yeah, because they did like the Mummy's Tomb. I think. Yeah, it may have been because it was so late. Because I think Hammer was starting to make movies around that time. Yeah, like right? 57, I think, was their first one. Also, aren't the others kind of open, uh, more copyright, more open to uh, yeah. um, be made? Yeah. I don't know what, what that is like for Lagoon. Is, is uh, Gilman and Lagoon like pretty tied to Universal? Well, I mean, the, I mean, the interesting thing is, um, you know, Dracula is based on... A novel you know frankenstein same thing so you know since creature from the black lagoon is as an original ip they can hold the copyright i mean i feel like you probably could have yeah i mean i feel like you probably could have done a generic creature and as long as it's not the gill man but i mean it's um yeah so that's why i always assume that there was never like a hammer kind of knockoff or copy of gill man Right, right. Let's talk about uh, the shape of water for a bit because it does kind of take the a version of the creature in its own direction. Um, so to kind of summarize the plot for a bit for for the listeners, so uh, this character Eliza Esposito, she's a cleaner at the secret government uh, laboratory in America, and. Uh, she's she's also deaf and was found at one point abandoned as an infant. She had wounds on her neck. She was mute, communicated through sign language. Fast forward, she works as a cleaner, and she finds out that the facility that she's in is uh, housing this aquatic humanoid that they discovered in the Amazon region. And one of the, the people in charge of of the asset is Michael Shan's character, Richard Strickland is a U.S. Colonel. She eventually has progressive interactions with the aquatic humanoid and they fall for each other. And it sort of builds to, uh, I won't spoil the ending, but it, it results in her attempting to help the creature escape. And they have this sort of romantic love story aspect in it it definitely builds off of the original creature from black lagoon del toro when he was in talks to remake the film or do a formal creature film 
he wanted to do it more from the creature's perspective and to sort of proceed as though his relationship with uh, Kay had succeeded. And so that was effectively what he did with Shape of Water. So do either of you guys have strong thoughts on the film? Uh, yeah, I, I'm, it's great. I have, I haven't seen it actually since the theaters, but um, I just remember my uh, first impression is um, not only is it just incredibly well directed visually, it's amazing, but uh, mm-hmm. you know, again, it's, it's Del Toro likes to do these movies about the outsiders or the others and you know Richard Jenkins' character is is gay in the movie, and as somebody mm-hmm. in that community, that spoke really spoke to me. Mm-hmm. So right, and also he sets it in that time period where it's like, okay, like like I said earlier, when you have to really think about when these when the original was made, it's like okay, and and Guillermo I think does it would was really smart by putting it. I think it's it takes place in the in in the sixties. Um, yeah, in sixty two. Yeah. Um, so it could definitely like I watched uh, them back to back because I wanted to see like how much of a but it's like a almost a direct sequel. I mean, it could literally like if you put Michael Shannon in Black Lagoon and it's like he just captured the monster and brought it back. It's like that's where the movie kicks off. Right. Um, and something that I really like, too, is it also it adds to that. The fantasy Guillermo always does that really good thing where he adds to the fantasy element and he mm-hmm. really push pushes uh it forward where it's like we do just you can just live a fantastical life type of thing and it's just so interesting because it's like okay you have it's like you have someone falling in love with a fish person and it's but you're like completely okay with it and it's like actually awesome and it's like okay mm-hmm. cool i'm like i i'm so for this and it's so weird to say like i'm so for the fish fucking but it's like yeah dude it's it was it's awesome like it's just you know like it, we are like, it would be cool you get an amphibian man you get some <laughs> yeah yeah like if i mean who's to say what love is i guess i don't know a consenting fish and lady yeah i mean it, it's it's interesting that it it's very much rooted in that kind of beauty and the beast kind of uh, again you know I, I love del toro because he does these like modern uh fairy tales and that's you know a classic mm-hmm. fairy tale that he kind of weaves into these um like monster movies um uh, but again it, it's it's so incredible because like it, it's about the the other and you know uh as you pointed out the 60s was mm-hmm. kind of uh cold war us versus them so yeah I, I just thought that was an interesting way you know he kind of th- woven all all that together thematically yeah exactly and also everyone is on the outside right in his mm-hmm. film like even yeah. michael shannon's character who wants so badly to fit in he just he really doesn't um you can even tell like he's not happy at home with his white picket fence and you know, wife and mm-hmm. two kids. And it's like, yeah, no one, everyone is really, he's like kind of, you know, no one's normal. Everyone has their weird quirks. Everyone is different. And I think that's what one thing I really just love is every character in that movie is like got something weird going on. Yeah, um, I, I think it's so cool that I'm, I'm with you, Mike, that I love Richard Jenkins character Giles because he starts off so not self-assured he's just trying to get by in a world that is hostile to his identity but his skills as an illustrator are pivotal to some of the events that happen in the film like he's a, he's his coming to terms with his own bravery is incredibly useful to 
the the film's conclusion. And the other protagonist characters are, you know, a, a mute Latina cleaner, uh, Octavia Spencer Zelda, who's a, a cleaner with Eliza, um, and she's African American woman. So you have all these characters that are working class, that are of identities that wouldn't be empowered in you know 1950s, early 1960s America. They wouldn't be the heroes of a film in those time periods, but they're the protagonists in this film. And the very fact that they're uh, taken for granted and they're not really thought of as protagonists is what allows them to do the heroic things that they do. Yeah. One of the ongoing jokes throughout the film is like, there was like a hit squad that came in and stole the fit, uh, the Gilman, right? It's like, yeah. they're like, Oh, there must've been like 12 or 15 trained <laughs> Russian operatives. And it's like, it's just two ladies and Richard Jenkins. <laughs> like, and it's like, that's it. Like, it's not commando, right? It wasn't Rambo. Yeah. And when like Michael Shannon is investigating, he's continually frustrated because at a certain point he starts to suspect, but it takes him forever to catch on because he's like, well, no, you could, you could, it couldn't have been. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's like, it's playing against type, right? That's what I like is like the whole, the whole idea of the film. And that's what I want to bring back, I guess, to, are we just going to call him the Gill man in shape of water as well? He might as well be like the formal name, but yeah, I was like looking at the costume for shape of water. And I'm like, this is like, this is almost too close to be a, a tribute like it's it feels very remarkably similar it's like if you took the designs that we had for creating creatures back then or to today to back then he would probably look very similar in a sense the eyes i think are just way more expressive because technology and things are much better with uh yeah. with the way that worked and but, Toro just kind of softly added some light cgi just to kind of add some some vibrancy to the edges of the costume basically yeah and i just i just really love that he didn't take the character and just completely change it. I really, now I'm like, okay, I want Del Toro to make more universal because I know they, they're really sticking to that re rebooting that franchise of all the universal movies. So let's just give them all the Del Toro. I'm fine with that. Yeah. I mean, he was um, planning to do Frankenstein for like the longest time. And I think that would be just perfect for him. Yeah. I would love to see him, or at least if he doesn't have time to direct them all, like just be like producer, like Kevin Feige. It he just let him be the Kevin Feige of Universal Monsters. Yeah, I want a, a Guillermo del Toro extended universe. Yeah, that's what I want. Yes. And then another thing that I, I I love about The Shape of Water is it kind of takes some of the post-colonial themes and some of the themes that I was talking about of the original, with it sort of being something above and beyond humanity. And that's the threat. It sort of takes that and runs with it because the entire time, Michael Shannon's character, he's saying, no, it's just an animal. It's just an animal. It doesn't matter if it hurts. It can't really hurt anyway. It's not, you know, the, the Amazon, uh, the Amazonians that, you know, we're, we're in the area. We're speaking of it like a God. It's not a God. It's just a fish. And as it gets, out we see that it can actually do things that we can't even comprehend and meanwhile it had uh this happens early on so it's not really a spoiler but it uh it bites off two of shannon's fingers while he's abusing the you know del toro's gill man we'll say and they get infected and over time basically turn him progressively monstrous not in a he's transformed like frankenstein way but his body starts to get just more hobbled and and his personality starts to change. And so he becomes more monstrous as 
this creature he discounted becomes more godlike and more beyond humanity in some ways. And so it's really anti-colonial because the whole Western colonial scientific, we know better than these Amazonians mindset was thrown in its axis. And then it also really flies in the face of human exemptionalism because like, nope, there's something out there you don't understand and it's better and weirder than you. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's along the lines of the main theme of the creature from the black lagoon and the original gill man, right? It's just like, this is what he is. He's stronger than us. He's, I mean, you can't, you're not going to beat him in a swimming race. That's for sure. Um, but yeah, it's like, okay, you, we get it. <laughs> Gil, man, you got it, man. You want some ladies? <laughs> we'll line them up. I mean, I, he cured baldness. He did. He did. He can bring someone kind of back to life. Gilman can cure baldness. Think about that. He yeah. don't have hair of him, his own, but he can give hair. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't, he doesn't take it the way he just giveth. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, we don't know if he has hair. We never saw the thing open up. You know, that's, that's really <laughs> true. <laughs> it was just pantomime, which I don't know what to make of that. Um, that's one thing I do love about that movie is he shows no fear in going there. Um, because I think a lot of filmmakers, I mean, even myself included, probably would be a little hesitant to be like, oh, man, bestiality is, would be, is a word that should not be used around my movies. <laughs> but... <laughs> But it's not. And I don't know. It's weird. It's tough. I mean, that's maybe what the whole debate deep dive thing is, right? Like yep. We're trying to figure out, is that okay? Is that interesting? I mean, I think it's pretty brave, or but it's but because it, yeah. it's it is very interesting. I don't know. What do you guys think? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's definitely some really big swings. But I think somebody like Del Toro can really, uh, you know, pull it off if, if anybody can. I think it's it's definitely him. So yeah, because he pulls it off so authentically, where it's like he's not it's not being played for a joke. It's not, mm-hmm. it's, I mean, it, if it was like an eighties slasher movie, right. It'd be like, Oh, tentacles are everywhere. And it's like, Oh, whoa. <laughs> but this is like, it's played like actually like, okay, he's treating the creature with the respect that it deserves where it's like, this is just as humanoid and human as any of us. Right. Like the, uh, in the eighties, you're not, you're not having a relationship with the tentacles, you know, <laughs> they, they're just this inhuman thing. But so like the, the, I think it's interesting to think about like the, the sort of the bestiality line, because I do remember some people being like, well, I'm a little weirded out because that's a fish man. That's not a, a human or that's not a person. But technically, like if you look at philosophy, the difference, so human is the species, how we define, how we casually call the species that we are, right? But being a person is an entirely different thing. Humans are people, but technically, depending on, depending on the attributes that we ascribe to being a person, if it's, if it's intelligence, if it's a soul, if it's emotions, etc., other things can be people than than just humans. It's like the reason why in Star Trek, you can have all these different species that have relationships with each other that aren't human, but they are people. Yeah, that's true. We're completely fine with aliens. Yeah. Right. Like we're completely fine. Like every time Kirk goes and bangs the the green alien or the blue (laughs) alien, like we're like, yeah, go for it, Kirk. Yeah. Or in Star Wars too. Yeah. Like, like, oh, you're dating that thing with the weird like head appendages. That's cool. (laughs) But when we're like, oh, the lady on earth is banging the fish, dude. No, I think maybe just because, you know, it's I mean, we know what a fish is, so it's something that's a little more closer to than like an a like 
just an alien woman or an alien species, I guess. Maybe that's why it's mm -hmm. it's a little more closer to home, but I think that's what's so effective about it. Just, yeah, I think it does kind of challenge our notions more than an alien does cuz cuz you're right, it's it's more proximate. Like we have a framework that doesn't fit it, but that we can put on it. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I, I like about the original too. Cause it also like to bring back that it came out in the fifties. It's like this creature does love Kay, right? He loves Julie Adams. Like he's absolutely yeah. enthralled by her. And just like in Guillermo's uh, remake where that's explored further, we see it's like, okay, the, the, things that are outside of humans like you know they're showing this romance towards us it's like it's really it's really fascinating because all the other characters and the people at the time thinking like this isn't such an affront like i think that's even used in shape of water where it's like he's an affront because it's like right. is he a man is he a fish no he's lucas sees fish man lucas knows fish man <laughs> um, yeah like it's it's just really interesting in that regard because like I said, it's very interesting to see because it's like, it's not, I want to say it doesn't make me uncomfortable at all. It's just, it's not something I would ever imagine seeing in a mainstream film. And it, yeah. I mean, and Creature of Black Lagoon gets away with it a, a little bit. Shape of Water just goes straight there, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. And, you know, it's interesting that I feel like Crimson Peak kind of, you know, is this big sprawling gothic romance and i feel like he was dipping his toes in the water as far as for the shape of water of exploring another kind of almost like pseudo gothic romance um but yeah mm -hmm. you know in a very different way obviously but yeah. you know i mean again you could still kind of see the parallels um and he's a big fan of you know not only fairy tales but like um like the it's a gothic romance genre. Yeah. So it's also kind of interesting too, because like he he's in a, in a lot of his career, like I think that's definitely one his sort of first major interplay where he's dealing with sort of interspecies or it, I guess ghosts are not like a species, but love between entities that aren't the same thing, but then in a more familial love way, dealing with that sort of uh, dynamic was central to his very first film, Kronos, where it was like the love of a grandfather to his granddaughter. But he, even as he was a vampire, he was navigating his familial love as something that still had an impulse to consume humans or blood, at least. Yeah, absolutely. He's always, yeah, that's why I like about uh, Guillermo so much is how he uses monsters to kind of show like more about humanity, I guess, in a sense, mm -hmm. um, because I mean, that's what every best, all, all the best monsters do, right? They, they take aspects of humanity and heighten them to, you know, fantastical levels like vampires, right? They're very much lust and, you know, driven for by immortality and power. And it's like, okay, cool. And then we see Gilman who is pretty, he's kind of driven by lust as well. Maybe that's just to further his species. But I think he's, it, I mean, Gilman's mainly just driven by our own fears of people just stepping in our own backyards and, you know, just on all, on all of that. And that's why I, I think I, is really cool about at least all the universal monsters and just monsters in general, like all the best well-crafted monsters have some, have that bit of humanity in them that's hyped up to a level where we're like, okay, we can accept it more now because, you know, it's not human that's doing it. It's a monster that's doing it. 
Yeah, like like I think Frankenstein is is another good, uh, much earlier example from Universal where um, uh, oh, absolutely he's so empathetic and alone in the world as like one of as as the only thing of its kind and once a mate and didn't ask to be created and uh it's so tragic to me that scene with him and the little girl because he uh he's just playing with her but then he ends her life because he doesn't know himself and it's not out of malice and he mourns yeah and yeah exactly and uh frankenstein's even just a great one even just from the book itself like the the journey and the lengths that the creature goes to just like let the doc- dr frankenstein know like what he did it's just pretty it's it's just it's just awesome that's not explored as much in the movie but, yeah um, yeah i just I, I i don't know i just i love monster movies man i'm just glad that we're <laughs> doing this it's pretty great i could talk about this stuff all day <laughs> yeah i mean it's interesting thomas what you were saying though about um you know the frankenstein monster always having a lot of humanity i mean that's i love how they they um you know whale explores that a lot more in the sequel which i think is probably hands down the, i think one of the best sequels absolutely like, ever of any genre oh um, abso- yes absolutely i mean without a doubt it's just so awesome because you can you can get away with hitting hard issues because you have that veil of oh it's not a human right it's a monster it's this thing and i I mean even going like i know jeff loves john carpenter uh, just going to the thing right it's like what's so bad about being the thing man like (laughs) (laughs) fair enough yeah it could be paradise man it could be like the thing takes you over and you're still you but you're just in ecstasy and in community your whole existence i don't know yeah and are you even i i, I mean we'll uh, you had to do an episode on the thing i want to come back for that <laughs> I definitely, absolutely will i just almost derailed everything talking about the thing but i know we should try to stick on Gilman because i was like and now i'm like okay i always wanted to have a discussion on the thing about because it's that's always what i was thought about was like it's a perfect copy of you it's you, but you get like special powers. And, and here's the weirder thing, too, head. Um, because they established that sort of any in their understanding in the film, any atom, any portion of the thing is the thing. So, like, are you a community that's just like jiving together in this one form? Are you your own individual consciousness? The interesting thing about the thing is that they the characters wonder themselves if they're it and what do they know? Yeah, exactly. They don't know if they're the thing or not, which is so awesome. Slither kind of takes that a step further. I love where everybody kind of acts as like the hive, um, which I think is such a Mm. really cool concept. Absolutely. I love, I love that movie. Yeah. Slither is so good. James Gunn, man, Nathan Fillion. Come on. That's, uh, it was really underappreciated. I feel like in its time as well. But we've had a lot, a, a big rebirth of monster movies. And I feel like a lot of people are coming back to it as just a really pivotal modern horror comedy. What's kind of cool is I actually have some screen use props from Slither what? Um, that I bought from the studio. Yeah, the radar gun at the beginning. Do you guys recall? Yeah. Um, yeah. I own that. And uh, one of the um, it's a horse uh, mantle things that they, they use to like break down the door. I have one of those. And then I have the oh, sheriff's uh, card. Oh, awesome. So what was really cool was um, it's... Um, 
I think the radar gun's an actual radar gun, but it's, you know, called the, the Usna 3000, I think. And, you know, mm-hmm. of course that's Brian Usna. Mm-hmm. And like, I've been corresponding with Brian for a little while. And, uh, I said, man, uh, you know, I sent him in his email, sent him a picture. And I was like, do you, did you know about this? You know, James Gunn kind of gave you this awesome homage and he didn't. And he was kind of actually like his mind was blown that I um, sent him this picture of the prop with uh, that's, you know, named after him. So I thought that's that was so cool. cool. Um, and he didn't even know. That's pretty awesome. Right? No, he, he didn't know. And uh, I was like, I don't know why we were just I was just thinking about it. And I was like, I'm going to send him this picture and be like, hey, do you uh, did you know this? <laughs> And what was kind of weird was the one prop that I bought um, was like the the horse thing that I think was used to break down, or at least one of the props that they used to kind of break down the, the door. I don't know if you guys remember that scene. Um, and it, yes, it, it came, did, yeah. yeah, so it, mine, so the prop came um, broken. And so this tells you how long ago this was. I was actually able to email James Gunn and be like, Hey, I bought this prop, but it was like broken. Do you know if like this was the one that was used in the um, the door effect? Because like there's some like white paint on the um, on the prop, which kind of led me to think maybe it got broken right. during that uh, thing. But he didn't know. But I mean, again, just it, it kind of blows my mind that back then I was just able to email James Gunn and he replied. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean. Awesome. That is, I mean, that's what I kind of, it's kind of a love-hate relationship with social media where it's like, there's so many people you could just reach out to and talk to, but it's also, there's so many people that want to reach out and talk to some people. I I don't have the problem myself personally, but I know I've just cold called some people and just been like, Hey, like you want to just jump on our show? And like, that's how, um, I got, uh, Lucky McKee to come on on our podcast. And uh, that was, that was a really fun time talking to him. And I mean, that's, that's actually a really, that's really cool. Um. Yeah, uh, I, I would. Yeah. yeah, I'd love to just be like, "Hey, James Gunn, like I, I have your prop." <laughs> well, so I, I think the moral of the story is: one, Guillermo del Toro should come on my show. Yeah. Two, uh, James Gunn should come on my show. And three, <laughs> and you might be able to help me with this. Brian Usno should definitely come on the show. Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, I can um definitely email him. I was trying to do like um like a like like a a live watch of society with like a AMA with him. Mm -hmm. And I mean, such a nice guy. He was like, I can pop on Twitter for a little while, but they were doing a virtual birthday party for like one of his maybe nieces. So awesome. Came on for a little bit. That would be awesome. Like I would love to chat. I mean, reanimator is my jam, but I'd really love to talk like from beyond or society with them because those are very monster centric. Yeah, I can definitely help you out that would be amazing uh i do want to give you guys a moment to pitch your next what's next for you what's going on anything you'd like to pitch and also how can the audience find you uh yeah so uh you can find me on twitter at strange cinema 65 and uh as far as projects go um you know besides the one book out already um I have another book that's coming out hopefully next year about the history of horror um, on home video. So I'm really excited about that. Oh, awesome. That sounds really good. Sounds great. Yeah. It, it, it was a lot of fun to write. Um, I'm kind of in the editing process, but um, it's got some great interviews. Um, you know, I do um, 
a deep dive in some of like the really cool labels that are, um, you know, currently uh, running like Severin and Vinegar Syndrome and, you know, highlighting some really awesome people that are keeping, you know, horror and exploitation on home video. So it's pretty awesome. I really look forward to that because I feel like those are always the hardest movies to find as well. Like you have to know someone that knows that area because it's like there's just so much. The the home video market is just too expansive. There's like thousands and thousands oh, yeah. of movies. And it's like, what's good? What's not? What am I taking my a chance on for renting or looking yeah. for? Because or... yeah, that's the thing. Like I uh, I really only take stuff like that. I definitely enjoy it, but I take it on recommendation only because there's so much and I don't have, I have a lot to do and not tons of time. So I'm like, oh, I want, you know, to know if it's going to be worth it or if there's something that I like, even if it's terrible. Yeah, you, know? but you find some of the coolest movies. Like, I know this isn't exactly like that, but uh, have you guys seen The Gate uh, from the 80s? I think it's yes. 80, yeah. 88. Yep. That movie's like, great. Dude, I fucking love that movie. I was like, there's no way I would have <laughs> watched this unless someone had recommended it to me. Like, how the hell would you have found The Gate? Like, I don't even know. Like, like that movie is so great. I mean, you would, I mean, uh, when I did my film guide, um, it was a lot of fun because uh, you know, I take a deep dive in like so many different countries and, and so many like bizarre, um, you know, films that it, it's interesting. Um, and, you know, I was telling a friend the other day that um, all these films that were so hard to find um, to review them, this film guide um, are like being re-released in these beautiful, like, you know, 1080p. And, and I had to like, you know, watch like really crappy um, VHS <laughs> copies or, uh, you, you know what I mean? Like, or yeah. like, a, so uh, yeah, it's yeah, really like, interesting. I, know, like, archi- I don't know if you guys ever go to archive.org, I think it is. They just like save old things. Yep. And yeah. uh, I'll just go there and like, they have tons of like random movies on there. Um, that is my jam. Yeah, I love archive.org. It's just all the old stuff that doesn't have copyright anymore or something. But yeah. I don't know. Who knows? Like, there's just so much random stuff out there. But uh, I guess I'll, I'll do my little pluggy part. Uh, hi, yeah. You guys can find me uh, You can at Twin Shadows Podcast. We do a podcast every week about filmmaking and movies and all that fun stuff. You can follow me on Twitter at TwinProd1. Uh, and I think... That's pretty much it. And I, I, Mike, I want to invite you onto our podcast if you uh, ever oh, yeah. want to that, that come awesome. on, hang out. We pretty much do uh, once a week. We just get shit face out of our brains and we talk about filmmaking and how hard it is. And and we talk about movies. That's Yeah, that, yeah. that sounds great. Sweet. So, yeah, yep. so I'll, I'll connect with you after this and all that. And thanks, Jeff, for having us on. Or having, yeah, it, was, it, was, it was a really good time. And you cannot do the it thing episode great. without me. <laughs> noted i love oh my god everybody knows that i love that movie and oh. i'm okay with that that's perfect like if you need to have like 16 people for your thing episode that's fine <laughs> i just need to know i i gotta be there man. I, I could do five thing episodes in a row it'll be 16 care. people we'll all try to figure out who's the thing <laughs> yes yes oh and just one of us all like uh kick off one of us periodically so someone dies as we're recording and it's like go. wait where did mike go <laughs> jeff <laughs> and then there was one i just tore out of my well, clothes just, you know you, the yeah. usual and at the end it'll just be like me and you two and like we just leave it like that that's it all be <laughs> yeah i'm burning us all alive you know <laughs> we're not letting the thing get out of here tied to this fucking chair <laughs>
but, um, but honestly, I don't think it'd be that bad to be the thing. <laughs> you know what? I think that's the perfect takeaway because it's all about personhood, man. We assume that creatures we can't understand don't have it, and we assume all sorts of things that we're wrong about. Exactly. <laughs> just like Gilman. Exactly. <laughs> Bring it home. I think that wraps us up. Once more, I'd like to extend a special thanks to our guests this episode and to all of you out there listening. From the dawn of recorded human civilization, we've been fascinated by monsters and the monstrous. They've inhabited our dreams and nightmares. They've been our protectors and our villains. They've symbolized our fears and vices, our hopes and potential. Fears of creatures and the night that nourishes them were key inspirations and fuel for the rise of human civilization, the need to get out of the shadows, behind the walls, and into the light. In many ways, understanding our monsters is an important part of understanding our world and ourselves. So thank you for taking this journey with us, we humanoids from the deep dive.